song. I hope you have your Bible, and if not, there's probably one in front of you in the pew, but we're going to be in Hebrews again today, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and uh, I don't like to move furniture. I don't like to buy furniture. <laughs> the current furniture we have, I don't even like to sit in my furniture. <laughs> But today we're going to talk about furniture. <laughs> it's basically what it comes down to. We're talking about furniture in the tabernacle. We're talking about the tabernacle and, and furniture. But I do get excited about this because the furniture actually means something and points towards something. So, and most of you probably know that the answer to that is that it points toward Jesus Christ and his coming and his death on the cross. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is furniture. And then next week we'll talk about Jesus a little bit more. And we'll mention Jesus, of course, today because no sermon would be a sermon without Jesus, right? All of scripture, in fact, points back toward Jesus. So rightfully so, every, every sermon should point back toward Jesus. He is so great, isn't he? Can I get a testimony? Is Jesus great or not? He is great. He is superior. He is better. And I go down through this list almost every week, and I wonder if people get tired of hearing it or if it's the purpose is that it be repetitive and that you remember it. Right? So Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Amen? Amen. He's better. He's better. He's a better prophet. He lived longer. He is excellent in any way that you can think of. He's better than the angels, even the mighty angels. He is greater than them. And to, if you really want to set a Jewish person back, you know, tell them that Jesus is better than Moses because Moses to them was their king. He was their leader, uh, excellente, <laughs> which means excellent. And no one was better than Moses, but Jesus was even better than Moses. He was better than Joshua, who led the people into the promised land, and they enjoyed rest there, but it wasn't the rest that eventually Jesus would give, the rest from struggling against our sins. He's better than the Levitical priesthood, the old priesthood. He's better than Melchizedek. And if you remember at this point in the book of Hebrews, the author says, well, I can't really go on and tell you about Melchizedek because you're not, you're not mature enough. You're not uh, growing. You're like babies in Christ. If you are babies at all, maybe you're not even saved. And he says, I know this because you have a tendency to want to go back to the old ways of the law. And you are drifting away from the faith of Jesus Christ. Uh, basically, he said, you're stuck on kind of these foundational principles and you're not moving forward in your faith. And he saw this as a sign of immaturity or possibly a person who's not even truly converted to Christ because they're just staying as babies in Christ. They lack spiritual discernment and they were not bearing fruit and they were beginning to be sluggish in the faith. I have been sluggish in the faith before. I don't know about you. It's not a good place to be. It's a place where you're tempted to maybe not go to church as often or uh, not do the ministry that God has called you to be. 
And he says, the book of Hebrews, he says to me and he says to us, he says to the, to the people then, you should not be sluggish. You should be fervent in your ministry to the Lord. And so he then kind of turns back this author of the book of Hebrews and he comes back to Melchizedek and he states that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He's like a priest of the order of Melchizedek because he lives forever. He has no beginning and no end. He is the son of God who lives forever. And then we come across this one verse that possibly might be my key verse for the Bible, the one that kind of encapsulates everything that the author is trying to say about Jesus. And it's Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, speaking about Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's the one verse, if I were to ask you to memorize one, for this book so far would be that verse. Jesus saves to the uttermost. He doesn't just partially save and then let us go, right? He perseveres, just like we are to persevere. As we are committed to him, he is so much more even committed to us that he will not give up on us. He will always work through his Holy Spirit to bring us back into fellowship with him if we stray away. This is how great a priest that Jesus is for us. He always lives to make intercession. Even now, Jesus is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. We have someone who's an accuser, right? We have Satan who accuses us on a probably, uh, I'm sure he does it almost all the time, but he accuses us of our sin. We rightly have sinned against God. And Jesus says, this is my child. I have taken that sin for them and they are righteous in my sight. Such a great promise that we have. We have such an exalted high priest, one who meets our every need. Jesus meets our every need as a high priest. He intercedes for us perfectly. So that brings us to our scripture for today. So if you don't mind standing as we read Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 11, you, or 1 through 10, you have a handout. It's wide open free for you to write down anything you want or to draw buildings or furniture or whatever helps you to remember the scripture, okay? Ver starting with verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, over, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of scripture, this description of the tabernacle, the various pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. We pray that you would help us to understand it, to see the deeper meaning behind it. Not just to see these as pieces of furniture like we would in our home, but as representative, as copies of shadows of things that, will, that were fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And when we see how this is fulfilled, may we be in utter amazement of a God who could predict and foreshadow such things and give you honor and glory. And so help us to understand, help us to kind of wade through this uh, and understand it to its fullest, that we might be more like Jesus himself and be better equipped to tell others about his glories and his majesty. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. 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 Well, this is not only going to be a description of the items that are in the tabernacle, but it's also kind of a passage through the tabernacle. And that passage through the tabernacle gives us a picture of what it means for a person and how a person actually comes to Christ, what is required for a person to come to Christ. So I'm thankful for Dave for putting a few slides up on the screen so that we can better picture uh, what's going on. This is a kind of a faraway picture of the tabernacle. And uh, we showed it last week, so if you're here, you saw it. There's a cloud that's coming down and resting over the Holy of Holies. And that is the presence of God. This is the whole purpose of the tabernacles, that the people could have some sense of the presence of God in their camp. And then you see, you know, a myriad of tents all the way around this tabernacle. And that's the Jewish people set up in their tents and they had to set up in a certain order and when God gave the command to Moses that to pick everything up and leave then they would have to pick everything up including the tabernacle which was portable and move to the next location set everything back up again and they followed uh, God through the wilderness uh, in this manner all the time wanting to be in the presence of God now I read something about you know i've mentioned that the tabernacle purpose is that god might enjoy some presence with his people but in one sense the tabernacle also protects the people from god because in the holy of holies there is this veil right there's this veil that keeps people from going into the holy of holies so we'll we'll talk about that in just a little little bit but the primary purpose is that God have a place to be with, with his people, which is what he has always wanted, right? This is his purpose in the beginning with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. He wanted to have a relationship with them, and he did have a relationship with them until it was spoiled by them sinning against God. And so they were cast out, and ever since then, God has wanted to be close to his people. And yet, our sin always gets in the way. And so going back to verse 1, it says, not even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. This earthly place of holiness 
or this earthly sanctuary. Maybe some of your Bible says sanctuary. That is what this tabernacle is. It's an earthly place of holiness or sanctification or holiness. We've learned from earlier in the book that this is a copy or a shadow of what there is to come. It was governed by rules and regulations. Don't we love rules and regulations? No, we don't, right? We don't. We don't love rules and regulations. And God doesn't like rules and regulations either. He is all about a relationship with us. And rules and regulations were only given because we have a tendency to hurt ourselves with our sins. So he did give rules and regulations to protect us, but also to point out how much we need a savior. And so there were rules of regulations in this tabernacle and things had to be done in a very specific way. Sacrifices had to be given in very specific manners. Uh, the incense had to be made a certain way all by the pattern that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But all these things have a purpose. It's not just rules and regulations of doing them for their own sake, but it's to do them to teach us a lesson about who Jesus is. The script, scripture that we have here <clears throat> today doesn't describe the outer courtyard, but there is an outer court, courtyard, and I think you have a slide of that. This shows the whole tabernacle. Of course, you see the tent in the upper part. <clears throat> That's actually divided into two sections, and then you have the courtyard. You've got this curtain going around, and this is exactly what we're going to see when we go to the tabernacle tour. But uh, there is this outer courtyard, and there's some important things in that courtyard. There is a gate. There is a gate. Go back to that other slide real quick, if you can. Go back to that. There's only one gate on the eastern side. So maybe you can see it down at the bottom on the left. There is only one gate. I think it's important that there's only one entrance into this tabernacle. If we're looking at a way for us to be reconciled with God, we're heading from the outer world into a holy of holies where we can experience a relationship with God, then there's got to be a door through this curtain. And Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to salvation with God. Amen? There's only one way, Jesus Christ. He is that door. He is that gate that we enter into. And then if we go to the next slide, inside the courtyard, you can see that there, it's going to be kind of hard for most of you to see, but uh, the main thing, the big thing there with the fire, that's the brazen altar or maybe bronze altar. You hear it called bronze altar, brazen altar. This is a place where sacrifices were actually performed. The lamb or the goat or the bull was killed. They are placed upon the fire and it was burned. And there's all different kinds of sacrifices, right? We do not have time to go through all the different kinds of sacrifices. But most of the burnt sacrifices were for sin offering and for guilt offering. In other words, sins that we have committed. And so this was a very sacred, holy place. Even before you enter the tent, there must be a sacrifice made, right? There has to be a sacrifice. This is what this is depicting to the people of Israel, that before you enter into the presence of God, there must be a blood sacrifice. 
Now we know even from the book of Hebrews that eventually it's not the blood of bulls and goats or anything else or lambs or sheep that take away sin. That's only pointing toward Christ. So a lot of people ask me, well, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Well, one of the way that Jews were saved is that they look forward to the time when this would be fulfilled by Christ. They didn't put their trust in the sacrificing of bulls and goats, but only in the Messiah who was to come. So they're saved by faith, just like we are saved by faith. So the brazen altar, it's a place for sacrifice. These sacrifices are needed for the forgiveness of sin, and sin must be forgiven before we enter into the presence of God, right? I don't know if you remember the stories that maybe I should tell it a little bit later, but no, I'll go ahead and tell it now. But uh, Once a year, a priest could go into the Holy of Holies. That would be the back furthest part of the tent. That's where the Ark of the Covenant's at. One time a year only. Any other time, if anyone ever went in there, and even if that priest went in without the wrong sacrifice, they would, be, they would die because of their sin. That's how serious forgiveness is. And the brazen altar is a place where that sacrifice is, take, is performed. You can't hardly see it, but in between the brazen altar and the tent back there, there's what's called the bronze laver or the brazen laver. This is a place where the priest could wash their hands. They had to wash their hands. They had to cleanse themselves before they went to meet with God, before they actually went in the holy place. And that was the place that they did that. So uh, on other things, we're given the dimensions. We know the dimensions of the brazen altar. That's probably exactly to scale. We don't necessarily know the scale of the brazen labor, but it was an important part. It represents to us the water of God's word cleansing us in the time of sanctification, right? All persons who come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their salvation continues as they read and study God's word and are conformed to the image of Christ. It's believed that this is what this water, this washing station represents. There's a sacrifice which pays the penalty for our sin. There is a brazen laver full of water where we wash that uh, aids in our sanctification, our becoming like Christ. So that's pretty much everything outside of the tent. And the tabernacle itself, we're going to be talking about it. I've mentioned it before, divided into two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy place was actually bigger. So think of it as about two-thirds of that building, of that structure, that tent structure. It took up about two-thirds of it. The Holy of Holies, maybe one-third. Priests would regularly enter into the holy place and attend to the sacred objects or furniture inside, okay? So uh, this didn't happen just once a year. This happened all the time priests would go into the holy place and they would attend to these pieces of furniture. The first piece that you see on the left there is uh, the golden candlestick or lampstand. You can call it either one. Or does anyone know the Jewish name? Menorah. Have you heard that? Maverick, have you heard that before? Menorah? 
Yep, that's the name. That's the name of the lampstand. Very good. You know it now, don't you, buddy? <laughs> and everyone else does too. So this is a lampstand made out of solid gold. In other words, you see a picture of it there, and we don't know exactly what it looks like, but you see a picture of it there. That would have made from a sing single piece of gold uh, hammered into, into the right shape. I don't know how in the world they would do that. Uh, by the way, at today's prices, it would be worth about two and a half million dollars because it's solid gold. Uh, but it had seven candlesticks. You can see that. I think you can see that. Three on each side, one in the center. And uh, it's believed to represent the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I say that because in Revelation, and maybe we've done it in our Sunday school, I'm not sure, but in Revelation, uh, the seven lamp, the lampstand is referred to as the sevenfold Spirit of God. So seven different qualities of the Holy Spirit, sevenfold, sevenfold uh, Spirit of God. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, that's what it's thought to represent. And so Israel, let's kind of show why this is important. What was, what was Israel's purpose? Israel's purpose was to be a representative of God on this earth, right? And people could see that through Israel, they would have a, a picture of who their God was. Who, through the sacrificial system and people coming by the temple, they would understand that our God is a holy God, that he's a loving God. And Israel failed at doing that, didn't they? They really didn't live up to the covenant. They were always going astray. They failed in this mission, but Jesus didn't fail in this mission. So Jesus became the perfect Israelite who fulfills the Old Testament law. I think that's amazing. I, th I think that is amazing. He fulfilled and became the perfect Israelite who would be the light to the world. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world, right? Where do you think he got that from? I think he got it from this. He's pointing out this lampstand that you have been taking care of and filling with oil all this time it represents me as being the light to the world. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He is the light of the world, but we play a responsibility too, right? This comes and it was always passed down to us in a way. Matthew 5, 16 says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. That was Israel's task, to be the light to the world. They failed at it. We must not fail at it, right? We must not fail at this. We must be the light of the world to others so that they can give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So on the right, you see the table of showbread. 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Representing God's everlasting promises. Everlasting. He is a promise kind of person, right? He gives these everlasting promises and he keeps them. 
This also represents the covenant between God and Israel, and it is a memorial of God's provision of food. God always provides for us, and he will always provide for us. Jesus, in talking about himself, he says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Remember the story? They, all these people were fed by Jesus the day before. He fed them bread and fish. And then he went across the lake, and next morning they all come rushing after him. And he gets upset with them. He gets upset with them because he knows their heart, that, because their heart was saying, we want bread, we want more bread. He said, I am the bread of life. It's me you should be wanting, not this physical bread. And so he says of himself, this is a bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is an eternal source of bread that gives eternal life. Amen? So that's what this represents. It re represents the coming of Jesus as the bread of life, the one who will give eternal life and sustain us. Okay, there's one more. You see it there in the back, the altar of incense. But what's wrong with this picture? Remember those pictures where you see one picture and then you see another one and you're supposed to find the difference? What's different about this picture than what I read? <laughs> I know it's hard. It's hard. And you wouldn't think about this. The writer of the book of Hebrews in verse 4 says that the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but he places this altar of incense on the other side of that veil in with the holy of holies. And people wonder why. <laughs> why? All during the Old Testament, when they're in the wilderness, the altar of incense, which is the object in the back next to the veil, has always been in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. Is this a contradiction in the scripture? What, is it a mistake? And people who commentate on this says it's really not likely that the writer of the book of Hebrews, who is so much steeped in Jewish tradition and law, would make this kind of mistake. So the best explanation I heard about this is that the altar of incense is in the holy place, but the fragrance is designed to go from there into the holy of holies. And in that sense, the altar of incense can be described as being in the Holy of Holies. So you might want to do more studying on that. But what does the incense represent? Does anyone know? This is like Sunday school, right? I'm asking questions. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Prayer. Prayer, right. It, it always has uh, been represented a prayer. And so Jesus prays for us, doesn't he? 
as a high priest, he intercedes for us. And so I see this as a beautiful picture of Jesus and his concern for us, his love for us. He prays for us, and this is what's represented by the altar of incense. It's also, I think, could be our intercessory prayer for others. Okay, the veil. There's a big curtain back there, right? Separating the holy place from the holy of holies. In the temple, this temple is just like the tabernacle, only bigger. But this curtain is humongous. <laughs> it is like six inches thick. Now, this one was not that thick, but it was at least six inches thick. It prohibited direct contact of ordinary people with the holy of holies. It was protective. It was God protecting us from his holiness and his wrath against sin. That's how serious this is. This was passed through only one time per year and always with blood. And we see that in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. That's the first part where they fill the lamps, they take care of the bread, but into the second only the high priest goes, but he once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So this veil presented, prevented this until the high priest was ready to go in that one time on the Day of Atonement. There are stories that say that that high priest, they would tie a rope on his ankle now, it's not in scripture, but it's a good story, and it's probably true. But say, say the high priest dies. <laughs> say he has some sin that's not atoned for, and he ends up dying in the Holy of Holies, then they would have to pull him out. That brings us to the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary, where we see here a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, most probably the piece of furniture most of you are familiar with just because of the movies, just because of Raiders of the Lost Ark, to be exact. We know what it looks like. Even in the movie, it looked something like this. It's basically a box about this big. It's not real big. Uh, it's overlaid with gold, made of acacia wood, I believe. It has a cover on the top, which is called the mercy seat. On that mercy seat, you can see that there are two angels, seraphim, I believe, and uh, they have their eyes covered because they're facing toward God, and even angels have their eyes closed uh, because of the brightness. Uh, it's got poles, comes complete with poles, so that no one can touch the ark, because if you touch the ark, you die. That's why it was so powerful in the Old Testament times, and, and people, kings, would take it into war with them. The Philistines tried to do that, didn't work out so well for them. But for the Jews, it was a source of incredible power, the power of God. It also symbolizes the presence of God. When everything was set up properly, the tabernacle, the right sacrifices were given, then depending on whether it was day or night, a cloud of fire or a pillar of fire would descend and it would rest right above this Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. You might say, well, what does the Mercy Seat have to do anything? Well, 
It's used in the New Testament for one, for one instance. 1 John 2, 2 says this, He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation means mercy seat. He is the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so that's just amazing. Not only is this the seat of God's presence, but it's the seat of his wrath against sin and also his mercy against the sinner. So that's the furniture of the tabernacle. <laughs> that's, the that's, that's the furniture of the tabernacle. So let's step back a little bit and look at this, what we've talked about, and kind of conclude with this pathway that we've been taking. Say, for instance, you're outside the tabernacle and you're at, you're at the gate. There's only one gate that you can go through. You must choose that gate. That's the way of Christ. Upon entering, there is a bronze altar for sacrifices. This represents the sacrifice Christ would make for us. There's a bronze laver for washing before the priests enter into the holy place. This represents the cleansing through God's word and our confession of sin as we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Inside the holy place, there's the golden lampstand. This is the enlightening of the Holy Spirit and the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. There's a table of the showbread. This represents that we as Christians are fed by the living word and it's how we remain strong in the faith. There's the altar of incense. This represents the prayer and communication and intercession. And then finally, through the veil into the most holy place is representative of us entering God's presence through Christ by his grace through faith alone. So you remember when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain? Tore. It makes sense now, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense. I know you probably knew this before, but it makes sense. It was rent from top to bottom, signifying that the way to God was now open. Verse number eight that we read, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. That curtain's got to come down, and it did come down, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered and cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In closing, I just want to list a couple things here that are also true about the tabernacle and about us. Today, God doesn't reside in a tabernacle or a tent, but he resides within believers. God is working his way closer and closer to us all the time. He had fellowship with us in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That was destroyed because of their sin. He wanted to be close to his people, so he had them build a tabernacle, then a temple, and then we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. God's holy presence is among us, even right now, right? 
he's present. And you might say, well, yes, he's omnipresent. He's, he's present everywhere in the world, and that is true. But I think it's also true that where two or three are gathered in his name, there am I in the midst of them. So he is with us in a special way as we gather as a church. As believers, we are part of a priesthood as well, not just Jesus. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood. We have a we have mediation to do, right, with the world. We are the ones who represent Christ and take the message to an unbelieving world that they might believe. So all through this, we see that the tabernacle represents a pattern of worship that's described by God. And I'm just going to real quickly, as we close, read this from Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. See if this sounds familiar with what we've been talking about. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had together to look at these various pieces of furniture not for the sake of looking at some material object, but for what they represent and the plan of salvation that you have put into place and are working out precisely in every way. We are amazed at how great and awesome that you are. We cannot explain it. We cannot explain a God who determines that he's going to save people and then carries that out in this world in such a way. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have everything that we need for salvation. We have everything that we need to persevere in the faith right up to the very end of our lives, that we might be glorifying and honoring to you. Pray now that you would be with us as we go to our time of invitation and prayer. Help us to consider all that you have done for us and be eternally grateful and thankful for that. Help us to lift our hands in worship and praise you. Help us to be not afraid but have boldness in sharing our faith with others. It's a message that they are literally, literally dying to hear and we need to be ready to give it to them. If there's anyone here today, Lord, who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, I give this invitation. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today. 
We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.